Welcome to the Outcast. I am Earl Newton, and with me always is Rich Sigfret. Guys, today we are interviewing Scott Sigler. If you don't know who Scott Sigler is, you probably have not been spending much time on the internet, and actually, that could be a good thing. But uh, the point is, Scott Sigler has, is the author of Earth Core. He's also the author of Ancestor. We'll get to that in a little bit. Scott, hello, and welcome to Requiem of the Outcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Scott, we're going to ask you a bunch of different questions, covering a lot of different topics, because really, if you think about EarthCore, you're operating as both an author, a performer, mm-hmm. a promoter, mm-hmm. and just a general producer, director, creating the entire environment of the novel. So if you don't mind, we're going to just jump right in, okay? Go right ahead. All right. First of all, Scott, what turned you on to the idea of podcasting your own novel? I mean, you, your biography says that you were very interested in writing. You had written your first monster story when you were in third grade, and you said you kept on writing since then. I hope it's not the same story. <laughs> no, I've hopefully improved a little bit. <laughs> since that one was a, a humdinger called Tentacles, uh, and it was very captivating if you were a third grader. Oh, well, there you go. Well, my dad took me to see the 70s version of King Kong when I was a little kid, and that was the first movie I ever went to. Uh-huh. And aside from it scaring the living crap out of me, um, <laughs> I, I literally left the movie theater knowing that that's what I wanted to do, was write stories about monsters and science fiction and and that kind of thing. So I've been doing it ever since then. And I first came across podcasting back in March. I had started a a job with a new company that does a lot of executive communications, and they do a thing called talk radio, so that they have basically a Larry King Live, but with a VP of sales or a CEO as the host, and they pre-interview everybody, and they write a script, and it's a real smooth operation, and it makes the CEO and VP sound great. It's a great way to communicate information. They've been doing that for about 10 years, and they put out MP3s, so I was looking around for something else to do with the MP3s to promote the company better, stumbled across podcasting, and I immediately connected it with serialized fiction, a la 30s and the 40s and back in the glory days of radio, and even some of the serial TV shows that are out now. And being a novelist, I went out looking for podcast novel. I went to Google and searched for that, and surprisingly, I couldn't find anything at all. And I kept trying different permutations of that name, assuming that someone had done this because it seemed so obvious to me as a great way to deliver an audiobook. And as soon as I realized that the reason it wasn't coming up on Google is because no one had done it, I saw my, like, oh my goodness, I have an opportunity to be first to market with a whole new idea. And I gave myself a crash course in podcasting and not being a very technical person, that was pretty rough, but uh, managed to get the first episode of EarthCore up in uh, March of 2005 and has been rolling ever since. I'm a huge fan of Robert Rodriguez. And of course, his theory is always creative people can get technical, technical people can never get creative. How did you feel about doing that first episode? What were the challenges there of getting there? I played in bands back in my younger days, so I have a rough familiarity with the recording process, but actually getting the software to work and working with a big 16-channel board that we had here where I work, it was a nightmare, to put it bluntly because I felt I was under a huge time crunch, because only one person gets to say that they're the first to do it. So it was a real panic attack trying to figure out all the technical difficulties and get the thing recorded. So the the feelings I felt for that first episode were primarily just a lot of anxiety and near panic that I wanted to be the first one to get it done. And the panic was because 
The only reason I wouldn't have been the first to get it done was because of technical issues that I didn't know how to work around. Trying to get that figured out was quite a challenge. Now, you mentioned the difficulties and whatnot. Did you have somebody that you can turn to? I know now, you know, you're viewed as one of the, I guess, experts on patio books. And of course, speaking of patio books with the patiobooks.com, which T. Morris, Evo, Tara from the Dragon page and a few other folks like Pocket Independent have jumped on. Was there anybody there that really helped you out in the beginning? Or was it literally just kind of asking the professionals asking people in radio what could be done? Well, there were very few resources for this stuff in March. I mean, the information has just exploded in the how to do a podcast field. But as soon as I started the process, I got the first episode done and then I pinged Evo and Michael over at the Dragon page and they helped with some information. Although their level of technical expertise was so far above mine, I had to kind of work my way up to understanding their emails to figure out what was going on. (laughs) Um, So I, I had an engineer here at work, but it was so new just trying to figure out what an RSS feed was and how to put an enclosure in there and what bit rate it had to be, that took some digging just to find all that information. But yeah, Michael and Evo were instrumental in helping me get the thing to a smooth running process. And actually, in the print version of EarthCore, I dedicated the book to those guys for all the help that they gave me. Speaking of specifically the production of the podcast, something I'm always big on in movies or in podcasting is the music. And I really kind of felt like you did excellently well with just a little bit of music that you had. Now, I have to ask you, the transfer, did you already know them? Yeah, I was actually in that band. I was making this, and, you know, I know enough about the basics of music rights. No, I just couldn't put anything in there. And this was even before the whole concept of Podsafe Music Network, at least before I was aware of it. And my old band had finished a CD, and the music was perfect for the the context of the book and the content of the book. So I just started using that, and it it turned out to be a big boost for them as well because they got about another 10,000 people hearing their music, so everybody was happy. Yeah, because I got to say, when I first started listening to the first episode, I'm like, wait a second, is this a patio book or is this a rock concert? What the heck? (laughs) I'm getting categorized as a heavy metal author now, so that's kind of interesting. That intro is so per. I remember I've I've listened to a lot of podcasts, and usually you know you hear this something like that, and then they go. <laughs> and when I heard that music kick up and it went, "You're listening to Earthcore," I went, "Oh damn!" Yeah, it automatically sets up a very cinematic feel to yeah. it. You know, almost like a larger than some guy in front of his computer with a microphone. Well. And I knew that that opportunity was there when I started doing it. I'm very confident in the work itself, and I think the story is extremely strong, the characters are strong, and I've got a pretty good idea of how to pace out the story to keep you turning the page. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt that I had something solid, and I wasn't going to go into this timidly, like, oh gosh, here's my book, I hope you like it. I mean, I thought I had a knockout. And I wanted to come up with a dramatic intro to it. And the other thing is, with a marketing background, it's like I wanted to catch people's attention right off the bat. And I didn't want the plinky music or something light. Fortunately, that song, Down With Everything by The Transfer, really comes up with a big guitar swell. And it's very bombastic and over the top. It was absolutely fantastic, for me at least, because the one thing I get tired of in listening to any kind of... I, we, we do a lot of independent media stuff. The one thing that we see a lot is people just don't take their audiences seriously. Mm-hmm. And they think they can just throw anything out. I mean, I've, I've probably been guilty of that at some stage. Where you could just <laughs> throw it out. Oh, they don't care. They don't know any better. But the fact that you really came in there, you had great music, you really put the thing together right... And the pacing you mentioned before pacing is so key and especially with a novel did you have any difficulty in taking the pacing of a novel which i would you'd probably agree you have much more time to develop Mm -hmm. things than you would in an audio drama so did you have any difficulty or did you ever feel like you wanted to change anything or tweak anything 
in the reading of the novel when you when you sat down to record it? Well, there's some fundamental things that had to change because I opted to do all the different character voices instead of just reading it straight as a narrator. So a lot of the, the he saids and she saids and some of the facial expressions, things that you would normally read and have no problem with, some of that just had to go to make it sound okay when you read it. But as far as the pacing, I was very true to that book. Fortunately, Earth Corps starts off with a pretty big bang and gets you wondering just what the heck is going on underneath that mountain in Utah. But I stayed with it. I No, I actually did cut out a few parts because I was getting that feeling too. In the print version, I think you can take your time, you can do your thing, and everything's fine. When you get into the podcast version, you have to keep the audience moving along. It's a lot like a TV show. Like I'm a big fan of Lost, and I was a big fan of Surface, but in the storytelling of Surface, which is the same concept as Lost, it's that weekly episodic cliffhanger type thing, you go through a couple episodes where nothing really happens, and I just totally fell off and lost track of the story. So with a patio book like Earthcore, it's the similar concept. You've got to keep giving the audience something that keeps them interested in the upcoming episode. So you, pretty much each episode is a commercial to sell the next episode. Right. Now, of course, you mentioned your acting just a moment ago. Did you have any voice acting or uh, like performance training, uh, perhaps theater growing up, to prepare you for this? Not really. In high school, in the plays, I was the comedic relief you know, I would do the character acting bits, but my buddies and I going all the way back to grade school have always been big on doing a bunch of different voices and different characters, just joking around type things. And that's about the only training. What I found interesting about that is I'm pretty good at a lot of different accents, but when you're doing four and five accents at one time, you tend to jumble them all up. And it's amazing how fast that you lose the ability to do that. So um, not a lot of training there. I just kind of worked my way through it and trying to find a voice that would fit each character. When you recorded these, did you read it straight through and do the voices in a very linear progression, or did you kind of record a bass track and then possibly do one character at a time, record all those lines, put them together, or would you even suggest something like that to avoid jumbling accents or anything like that? Uh, that'd be a great idea. I mean, I don't have that kind of project management expertise with the <laughs> software. And that's what it really came down to is I've gotten a lot of comments. You know, I get bagged on particularly for my female voices because there's only so many so many female voices that I come up with to make them sound different. Wait, I have to stop you right there, actually, because when you first did Kayla Myers, uh-huh. I actually had to commend you on your performance of that voice because, especially now saying you've never had any training, I have had a lot of theater training. I've done a lot of different kind of theater kind of things. And one of the first things that guys who are untrained try to do is a really high voice like that? And you never did that. You just went to the higher <laughs> register and let it sit, and I, I thought that was very smooth of you to do. But anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean Thanks. to interrupt you. And, uh, you know, you'll notice in Ancestor, I do have one of those higher register voices because I've just, I've run out of different voices <laughs> to do. I didn't know what else to do. Was that the character from Earthcore in Ancestor? Oh, no, it's a different character. You just got to use the same voices, right? The real challenge with Ancestor has been coming up with all new voices. Right. Some of the voices are the same. And, you know, the readers are very unforgiving about that, too. I had a bit <laughs> character in the first episode of Ancestor, and I got probably a couple hundred emails of people going, hold on a second, bro. That's the same voice you're using before. That's got to go. So... The uh, the accessibility of the author with this kind of format, um, I get a lot of constructive feedback from the audience, that's for sure. And if, if they smell you know laziness or BS somewhere, they're quick to let me know, and I have to go fix it. That was great, because I actually heard you add the quotes around constructive. 
<laughs> it's been very interesting because the other thing I'm doing that I don't think any author has done before, and this is thanks to the medium, is online accessibility that I have. I mean, right on the blog, I've got my AIM, my Skype, my Yahoo, my email. People ping me all day long, and they're usually quite surprised that they'll send me an IM, and I'll just IM them right back, and we'll start talking about the book. And I think that that's been wonderful for capturing fans because now they feel a personal connection and they're much more interested in what's going on. And, but it also creates that sense of familiarity where, you know, that fourth wall is gone. If people think something's not working, they're very quick to let you know. Going back to your question of the production, you know, it's the logistical thing. If you've got the wherewithal to lay down those different tracks and put everything together, that's great. I highly recommend against it because I still run into problems where there's little bits of audio that I didn't know were there. And whenever I go to a second track or a third track, I can run into trouble and wind up with a finished product that's got some stuff in there I, I didn't expect to hear. So I pretty much go through the whole thing. I just go through it in a linear fashion. It's mostly one track and I'll stop and restart and re-record over things a lot. That's what takes the most time, is if I goof up any line, I just redo it again. But no, I don't do multiple tracks for each character, which might be something I have to get into down the road because of some of the cool voice modulation software that I've heard and seen demos of. You know, I can do a slightly different voice, and then with this other software, it won't even sound like me, but it still sounds natural. And that's really hard to pass up now from the performer side. I'm like, how can I not use this stuff? This is great. It's going to make the story so much better. Would you be open to having other people help you out with some of these characters? Yeah, definitely. And it, that's one of the big comments you get from the readers, but that brings you back again to the logistical side of things. There's not a lot of money involved with this right now and it's produced on a weekly schedule. So if someone's going to commit to be that part, they've got to show up to record. It would be beyond me for them to record their parts and send it in. I mean, I just I don't have that kind of technical expertise to work that in. But it's a possibility. Okay, I have to hit you with a couple of uh, writing questions because I come from the writing side. So Okay, so when you're writing, how much of you is thinking, if I write this, this will please the audience? And how much of you is thinking, if I write this, this will please me? It's all about the audience. Everything I write is about the audience. Unfortunately, I'm the same audience that I'm writing for. So I'm able to really just kind of write and look at it and go, man, I think that's cool. And then, okay, that's in. I write stories to entertain people and let people escape and get into some different world. I'm not trying to do any literary thing. It's not a representation of modern day man or man struggles against humanity or any of that other garbage. I mean, that's just my opinion. That's great if you want to write that stuff, but I write stories like Alien and Predator and uh, Starship Troopers, those kind of things. I watch those and I'm gone. I'm forgetting about my problems completely for an hour and a half or two hours. So that's the same angle I'm coming from. So it's all about the audience and I'm trying to write what I think is really cool. And also from the audience, I feel I'm a very blue collar writer. I'm going to put in the time to make sure that when you get to the end and all this crazy, unrealistic things are happening, that you're not even going to think about it because I've already set the framework for these unrealistic things and showed you how they're going to happen. Like, watch this hand, and then this hand over here is going to pull something out. But avoiding what I call a speed bump at all costs. And a speed bump is anything where the reader suddenly realizes that they're reading a book. Anytime they stop and go, well, how could that happen? That character wouldn't do that. Anything along those lines. I'm really strict about that my self-discipline. I mean, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be smooth and flawless. And if any time the reader gets to that point and goes, well, that would never happen, that's when I have failed and i got to go back and fix it. Well, let me throw something out at you then, Scott. When you're doing that, how much of your writing is done in pre-writing in the sense of sort of like thought scribbles and character scribbles and just sort of sitting down going, wouldn't it be cool if so-and-so did this? And how much of it is you write it out sort of Tolkien-style, write the whole thing out, and then when you get to a mistake, you start over again and keep writing. 
most of it occurs initially with a combination of ideas. With Earth Core, it was the combination of genetic deterioration in a medium-sized population to the point where you could actually get species regression and they begin to lose their civilized nature. And then combining that with a lot of the cool mining research that I was doing and sort of combining the ideas. And then I combine the ideas and, okay, now here's the premise. What kind of characters would gravitate towards discovering this and how would this come about? And then I start to populate the characters. And once I've got a decent idea of who the main characters are, I kind of outline the book so that I can see from beginning to end. Some people just start writing and they don't know where they're going. And it's freaky for me to talk to those people. Oh, I'm on 250 <laughs> pages. What's going to happen? I don't know. Character's going to figure it out. That's wow. <laughs> crazy. I mean, I don't have that skill. I have to have everything figured out ahead of time, usually because the plot gets so orderly and there's so many foreshadowings involved leading up to the big climax that the whole thing has to be scripted out. So then I'll just write it out, and usually I can plow through a first draft pretty good because I'll skip over areas that are problematic. I'll get to that later. And then when I do the reread, that's when I find those things. And then many, many, many pages get thrown in the trash and rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Now, I have three compliments for you. All right. <laughs> First off, I loved the the whole civilization regression. That's something I've always kind of wondered about. And I've always wondered if other people wondered about. Mm -hmm. Now, my next one is you mentioned Starship Troopers, one of my all-time favorite pulp movies. And when I started to think of the ferocity of the bad guys, of course, we don't want to say too much uh, spoiler out here for some folks that may not have heard it yet, but I really thought of the bugs from Starship Troopers just hack and just, you know, hack and slash, just chew you up and just nonstop keep coming at you. Right. That's totally the, the feeling that I got. And when you first described some of the critters that are involved, I even got a little squirmy in my seat because it was just like, that's stuff I don't like, you know? And, and of course, I just had to find out more about them. But this all leads to one of your declared influences, Lincoln Child, called Earthcore Cutting Edge Science. A perfectly realized setting, terror both plausible and profoundly unsettling. Earthcore is more exciting than a thriller has any right to be. Now, I would like to know how that review came about, and of course, you know, what was your reaction to that? Well, I, I mean, my reaction was I was beyond thrilled. I started emailing him maybe seven or eight years ago when I heard about the movie Relic, hmm? and I read some reviews of it and read the science that they were talking about, they didn't just whip up a monster that fell into a toxic dump and suddenly grew to 10 times its normal size. I mean, they, they put a huge amount of creative thought into, well, we want a monster to terrorize the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but how could that come about? It could actually happen. It's a far-fetched thing, but technically that could really happen. And when I read Relic, I was just mesmerized. I thought that was just the coolest monster book I had ever read. So they had a website, and I just started emailing them and I was shocked when they emailed back and just started a conversation. And then I sent them Earthcore, and they, he actually read it and sent me back a quote. I'm not sure if, how much of it he read. I mean, I'm hoping he read the whole thing. <laughs> but the quote he sent was just awesome. I mean, and that's right on the front cover of the print book now. So I mean, I'd get it tattooed awesome. on my forehead. I mean, that's... That's where I would be. If I got a review like that, no question, it would be right on my forehead, and I would walk around with it everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty damn cool. It's yeah. really cool. Well, let me ask you, going on with reviews and things like that, something a lot of people have a problem with. When you get reviews, when you get media attention, I mean, obviously you're getting interviewed right now, and mm -hmm. if you look at your blog, you've been interviewed a lot. What does that attention do for you, to you, 
and do you find like it has a negative or positive reaction on your work and how do you keep that attention from influencing you when you sit down and go okay now I got to start from square one again right the attention's a blast it's a lot of fun so far all of the interviews have been really positive and people are interested in not only the work but the podcasting angle so there's a lot of different things going on it's been great and I really enjoy it and it's a, a real positive spin the reason I write these books is to entertain people I want, if people are going to plunk down their 20 bucks for my book, I want them to walk in away going, that was a bargain. And I'd gladly have paid 40 for it. That's the reaction I'm seeking to get to really give people their money's worth. The interviews are part of that, and usually you get an interview because people like your work. So that's very good, too. But I don't see it influencing the work at all. I'm a little bit pig-headed in where I want to go and what I want to write. And I think writing is a lot of self-confidence to it, too. It's a lot like people entering a beauty pageant. You can't enter a beauty pageant and not be conceited. I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible to think someone would say, I'm pretty enough to win a beauty pageant, but they're a modest person. Those two things don't go together. And I think being a writer is the same thing. I mean, you basically, if you want to sell a book, you're telling the world that I think I write a story better than most people out there, and people are going to pay money to read the stuff that I write. So if you have that attitude going in, whether people admit it or not, I mean, that's the core element of why you're writing a story, because you think you're a good storyteller. So I think I'm a pretty good storyteller, so I'm going to go ahead and tell stories the way I want to tell them, and I don't think the interviews are going to affect that very much. Awesome. Well, that's actually a really good point that it doesn't get brought up a lot. How much of that is just you going, well, I don't know how strong I feel about my work. I think it's pretty good, but I'm going to put on a good show. And how much of it is you have worked hard enough to prove my work is this good? It's that I know my work is that good. And that sounds conceited, but that's the bottom line is when I'm done with a book, I know that that book is buttoned up tight as can be, and it's a great read from start to finish, and that it's just a solid story, and it's entertaining. I'm my own worst critic, and my wife is my second worst critic, so I'll <laughs> read it. A lot of times, I'll give things a pass on the cool factor. I'll read it, well, that's just plain cool, and then she'll read it and be like, yeah, sure, it's cool, but the writing's garbage. Get back to work. So, <laughs> Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> Yeah. A lot of people say, don't let your loved ones read it because they won't give you an honest opinion. That's not a problem that I've ever had in, in my marriage. I got a great critic living with me. All right. We're going to go into what we call the gauntlet. Okay. Uh, what we're going to do here is basically we're going to ask you questions as quickly Shoot. as possible. All right. Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Here we go. First question is, will the body count in the sequel of EarthCore be higher? Higher. Amazon.com has reviews of EarthCore by people like Tom L. Samuel Beach, who say, a great story, great characters. Are any of these your wife in disguise? <laughs> um, no. Do you anticipate more established mainstream writers like Stephen King or Alan Dean Foster starting their own podcast? Absolutely, and I, I can't believe they haven't done it yet. Will any characters from EarthCore 1 be in EarthCore 2? Yes. Do you believe that great writers must undergo pain and suffering in order to become great? Absolutely. Do you find it at all ironic that you concurrently write very graphic, fast-moving, violent novels and also live with dogs named Mookie and Emma. <laughs> yeah, but you should see what they do to stuffed animals. That's where my inspiration comes from. They just dismember the thing. Second leads into the next question. Do you think they may be part of the reason you write very graphic, violent, fast-moving novels? <laughs> the Monster and Ancestor is based on Emma. Wow. <laughs> is it better to write well or write frequently? Uh, frequently. Pick one. Successful hack or impoverished genius? Successful hack. <laughs> see, that's why we ask him. Would you like to see your work turned into films? Yes, and we're working on that right now. Rock on. Would you sign away the rights to your work to be made into a film? Would you sign them away? Uh, no. If someone were to play Scott Sigler in a movie, who would you cast? Danny DeVito. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> I have to take a moment for wow. Uh, <laughs> what's your favorite book? Um, gosh, my favorite book? That is a tough one. I'll, I'll have to go with Relic. I liked Relic. Okay, one more I have to ask you. Uh, you said you've written screenplays. Do you look to pursuing a career in screenwriting as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm pursuing novels, TV, movies, the whole nine yards. And I'd like to hit you with the very last question for our gauntlet session. Were the rock-spitting guys from Legend of Zelda the genesis of the rock to pie? Uh, no, they were not. No, the genesis of the rock to pie was the cavemen in 2001. That's what he says, ladies and gentlemen, but remember, he has to say that for legal purposes. <laughs> Scott Sigler, we appreciate your time so much today. It was a fantastic time, and we really uh, look forward to Ancestor, which you can find at scottsigler.net. Is that right? That is correct. EarthCore is moving over to patiobooks.com, mm -hmm. so that'll only be available at patiobooks.com. will soon be available for purchase, the whole thing, on iTunes, and is available at amazon.com. And you can go to scottsigler.net to get access to all those and to get access to the free patio book Ancestor. Well, God willing, your site will not shut down from all the hits, because from what I've seen, it's a fantastic book. I'm right in the middle of it right now, and uh, it has idled away many an hour for me driving <laughs> back and forth from work to school and home and work again. Perfect. Scott, thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you, sir. Hello, this is Scott Sigler from EarthCore and Ancestor Podcast, and I am an outcast. I am a bloody, savage, bloodthirsty outcast, and listen to the damn show or it's going to be your ass. All right, God. Jeez. Yeah, I like that. You know, and I, I, I just want to say one last thing. I, I know I'm starting to sound like Columbo here. Jeez, Joe, one more question. Uh -huh. But I really have to say, I've never been a huge fan of people who beg for votes, but I've got to say, when you said, you know, go there and vote or I'll kick your, or what is it? Uh, I'll, put a boot in your, I'll put a boot in your ass. I thought that was, I, I started busting up laughing right in the middle of work, so. Well, you know, it's like, I've taken a little bit of heat for that, but not too much, because I'm just, I'm totally open about it. Like, that's a promotional tool. And if I chart on Podcast Alley, that's going to mean extra people are looking at the book. You know, I'm not shy about it, so ask for the votes. Amen. Well, sure, you absolutely wrap it up in, in the, the gimmick. You know, like, hey, I'm a media whore. You know, please. <laughs> this is to promote me, so go do it. That has been a huge, and it, you call it a gimmick, but it's really true. It's just being, it's funny how people's attitudes change. When you, well, are you begging for votes? Well, yeah, I'm a total media whore. I'll do anything for a vote. See, I disagree there, though, Scott. I think you got the terminology totally wrong. See, Kevin Smith is a media whore. He will <laughs> prostrate himself before anyone with a pen and pad. You seem more like, and I don't mean to be ingratiating because I'm not, it just seems to be the fact of the matter, you seem more like a media pimp. <laughs> We're like, if they don't do it, you'll smack them around and make them your bitch. <laughs> I, and I've been trying to trying to develop that too because I get other people to do my media whoring for me. So I'm you definitely go, that's right. a pimp. I've got my media my media whore groupies. That's right. Oh yep, my god! I got god. my media bitches all lined up. My media bitches. <laughs>